You and a couple other people have basically said to me this crime was related to drugs and a possible debt that uh, Rick owed someone. So is that your understanding, first of all? Yeah, if you want, I just tell you the whole, the yeah. whole thing. Tell me basically the story. So, is telling me that, um, that Ricky got into some trouble with uh, the black mob out of Chicago and he owed a few thousand dollars and took care of it. And the pig pen that used to be behind the uh, house was where the body was disposed of with the pigs. All of it there in a nutshell. I, we didn't know nothing about the car. That was kind of a mystery to us as to how it wound up in GR. But Was he specific about, like, I mean, they don't just throw someone in into a pig pen. I mean, did he specifically say what was done to him? Just, he was dismembered. This podcast covers a murder that occurred in 1983. It is a true story, and while I have relied heavily on police reports and public documents, the opinions of the host and interviewees are simply that, opinions, not facts. The credibility of the witnesses and what they say is to be determined by the listener. Everyone is presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Well, how old were you, first of all, when um, Rick went missing? I was uh, still a teenager. I was uh, 15 years old. Did you guys go to high school together, the same high school? No, Rick is above me in school. He was a he was a upper classman. So you lived next door to him around the time that he went missing? Yeah, at the time he went missing. Where was this that he lived? What area? He was in Croton, uh, Croton and Hardy Dam. I was closer to Croton. So there was a bit of an age gap between the two of you, but you lived near him. And when did you first meet him? Do you remember? Oh, geez, 79, if not sooner. Was it just from the neighborhood? Is that how you kind of met him? Or was there any a specific place that you... Oh, I helped with the older crowd. Oh, I see. Okay. Smoking pot when 1975, I believe, maybe 76. So you were younger, but the guys that you hung out with were all older. Yeah. Okay. Give me a sense of who he was. What type of guy was he? Did he work anywhere at the time? Um, gee, I don't remember. As far as I can remember, we were all just cutting wood. Someone poured the wood, you know, the firewood for houses, and that was kind of big back in the day. Okay, all right. What kind of, you know, what was his personality like? He's a nice guy. He was outgoing, funny. Yeah. One of the one of the funnier guys. A little serious at times. I mean, he was enough that nobody really crossed him. Of course, you know, a nice guy don't get crossed that much anyway in a small town. Just a quick note. This season's case, you're going to hear this a lot. Yes, I know. That annoying sound covers up information that you would probably like to hear. But all I can tell you is that I only employ this device when necessary. And for this case, I've decided not to mention most names. Not the person I'm talking to. Not the person I'm talking about.
Down and Away generally targets local communities in the areas where I'm trying to shake out new information that could possibly garner new leads for law enforcement. I am not a cop. I can't solve cases. My job as I see it is to make people give a shit about the victim. In many of the cases that I cover, the locals have very little information about what actually happened and sometimes that keeps the right information from getting to police. Time can work against law enforcement, but so too can it work to their advantage. Sometimes people who have information decide that they no longer need to be scared of what they know. They eventually realize that the perpetrator isn't the all-powerful boogeyman that they earlier made him out to be decades ago. So they decide to do the right thing and come forward. It's to those people that I'm speaking in this season, the handful of you who have first-hand knowledge of this crime, but for whatever reason have not yet told everything you know. I know you're out there. You are the key to this case. You have the power to hand justice to Rick Atwood and provide some closure to his family. As uncomfortable as it might be, you can still make this right. I'm asking you to do what you would want others to do if the roles were reversed. I'm asking you to put yourself in his shoes. I'm asking you to put yourself in the shoes of the other family members. If it was your mother or sister, or father or uncle or brother, or your lover or your friend, and someone had information that could help solve the case, you would want them to come forward. That is all I am asking of you to do unto others what you would have done unto you. This season's case is for you, and so I will make my case directly to you. So let's start at the very beginning. I'm told that's a very good place to start. But sometimes to get to the beginning, or what you're calling the beginning, you have to start at the end and work your way back. The beginning of this story is 1983 when 25-year-old Richard Atwood, Rick or Ricky to his friends, went missing from White Cloud, Michigan. His absence wasn't reported for 14 days, perhaps because going off the grid for a couple days wasn't uncommon for him. But 14 whole days, that felt like something might be wrong, at least to those who knew him. Two months after he went missing, his car turned up in Grand Rapids, Michigan which is about 45 minutes away from where he lived at the time. Rick Atwood is still missing today, in 2018, and I'd like to find out why. So I did what I always do when I pick a name from the list of unsolved homicides in my district and decide to start digging into a case. I put a message on a local Facebook page. This one was on a White Cloud community page because that's the area where he lived. The initial response was overwhelming. I spent two full days fielding private messages, taking in theories, and listening to people tell me what they thought happened. As always, I heard some names and some rumors to go along with those names, and even learned of possible body disposal sites, one in particular I kept hearing about. Word on the street often contains threads of truth wound around years of gossip and supposition. Stories that are told and retold over the years 
and take on a life of their own, eventually fashioning the mystique that surrounds a missing person. In the absence of factual information, people tend to fill the gaps with things that feel right to them. It's a very human reaction to the unknown, this emotional caulking of the cracks and crevices, to smooth an otherwise jagged surface. Humans, we don't generally like the unknown. We don't like jagged surfaces. The unknown is scarier than the horrifying truth. Jagged surfaces tend to draw blood, cause pain. At the very least, they fester in the dark recesses of the mind in those hours when anxiety finds it easiest to sneak in. I couldn't find much information online or in old papers about Rick Atwood's disappearance. I did notice that from what I could glean from surface information, Back in 2004 and then again around 2016, police tried to give the case another go. They put out a press release urging anyone with information to contact them. That's a clue right there. It means that police think there's a possibility someone has information they have not yet told them. As I said, this podcast is for you. What we know about no-body cases, which is exactly as it sounds, a case where you believe foul play was involved but you have no body, is that they can be hard to prosecute, even if you think you know what happened, without an overwhelming amount of circumstantial evidence. Ideally, what you want is someone to give you information that leads you to the body. And I want to be perfectly clear, that body to which I'm referring is a person, an actual human being not just a blurry image on a press release. That body is a person, and his name is Rick. Like the rest of us, Rick had hopes and dreams. He had favorite foods and favorite music. And I can guarantee, when he was a baby, his mother knew him by his smell with her eyes closed. If you don't understand what I mean, ask any mother. She'll explain it to you. Rick was funny, I'm told. He liked hunting, fishing, and rock music. And he loved cars with souped-up engines and big tires. Rick had friends who liked him, a girlfriend, family, and he spent time on this earth doing all the things that humans do, like love and laugh. I'm sure that like all of us, he screwed up at some point and disappointed someone. At another point, I'm sure he made someone chuckle. And while at another, he probably irritated someone else and I bet he pulled his coat a little tighter around his neck on those frigid winter mornings that every Michigander knows all too well. So that's the body we're looking for. That body is Rick Atwood. He went missing in 1983, and for over three decades, his family and friends have been left wondering, what the hell happened? Well, this season I'm going to tell you what happened. Or most of it, anyway. In addition to his Trans Am being found in Grand Rapids, two months after he was last seen, one of the few other pieces of information shared in the newspaper was that there was a strong suspect early on, but, according to the prosecutor at the time, one of the obstacles in the case was proving that the victim, who was missing, was actually deceased. When the crime occurred, DNA was not regularly tested. Evidence wasn't even collected in the same way it is now. Later, DNA testing was done on a biological substance 
found inside his recovered car, and it was linked to Rick Atwood. That is as specific as law enforcement has gotten in the press. Some biological substance was found in the car and, at some point, it was linked to Rick. So that is the sum total of information that I had when I sent my FOIA request to the Michigan State Police. Once I got the report, I would learn a hell of a lot more, including the fact that the biological substance in question was, in fact, blood, and most certainly enough to suggest that a crime had occurred. It would later be confirmed through testing to be Rick Atwood's blood. In the meantime, among those early responders to my Facebook post, I learned from three sources that they had all heard of the same specific private property where the body may have been disposed of, although how that was done, and where on the property, varied from story to story. What everyone did seem to agree on was that drugs were involved. To tell you the truth, they kind of scared me a little bit, so I veered away from all them guys, and I think it was only a grade or two ahead of me. We'd partied a few times together, but... Did he sell drugs? No. Did he do drugs? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. So what, all of you guys that sold, did all of you, like Rick, did he do drugs as well? Yeah, Ricky did drugs. That would be, that's what got him in trouble. This case is different than any I have covered. Because once I got the file, I learned that they have a named suspect. And a pretty fair amount of circumstantial evidence. It appears, in fact, that there is no doubt who killed Rick Atwood. It's also pretty clear to me who else has first-hand knowledge and the extent to which they were likely involved. There are a lot of witnesses, some who actually saw the named suspect in the car with Rick that day. DNA testing of items in the car supports that. The named suspect was in Rick's car the day he went missing. That is not up for debate. There are people who know what happened. That is also not up for debate. There are people with first-hand knowledge that could come forward today and speak with police. People who have not been honest about what they know. That is also not up for debate. Barring those folks coming forward, I think that I can say with a fair amount of certainty that there is one very specific thing that needs to happen to get this case where it needs to be. They need to find Rick Atwood. One day in the summer of 1983, a four-door, dark-colored vehicle with four people inside drove by Rick's trailer on Croton Hardy Road. The car slowed to a stop. A black male subject got out of the front passenger side. He walked toward the trailer as the car rolled slowly down the road and parked just down at the corner south of the trailer. Rick met him outside and a heated conversation ensued. The black male accused Rick of ripping him off on some dope. You're just trying to get something for nothing, Rick told him. The black male then produced a pistol from the pocket of his jacket and pointed it at Rick. He told Rick he was going to make it right. 
The back and forth between the men lasted a little while, but eventually the black male walked back toward the road and motioned for the vehicle to return. It never came to a complete stop as he jumped in and the car sped off. I told you I was going to do things a little differently this season. First of all, you won't be hearing many names because nobody wanted to go on record in this case, and even for the few that did, I suggested that it was not a good idea. I know who killed Rick Atwood, and I won't even be using his name, nor will I name his relatives who appear to know exactly what happened the night Rick was murdered. I'm going to call Rick's killer the Named Suspect because his name and that of his brother and father are all over the hundreds of pages of police reports and supplementals that I reviewed while researching this case. The police know who did this. Lots of locals know who did this too. They pretty much know the when and the how as well. As for the why, well, the why is as pathetic and predictable as the motive for most murders. The problem is the where. Not where did it occur, but where is Rick Atwood? So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to tell you a story. Put it all together in the form of one long running narrative that outlines what was seen and heard in White Cloud, Michigan on August 10th, 1983. On that morning. Later that afternoon. And then into the night. Even into the next day in the early morning hours. And then the hours to follow. Obviously there are parts that I can't know. Like where exactly they were standing under the Michigan sky when they prepared Rick Atwood's final resting place. I can't know how that went, in those moments, which I would expect to include fear and calculation and adrenaline when they were doing what killers do when they don't want to get caught. They need to make the horrible thing they did disappear, so they take it to a place and hide it, and it is an it that they have now dehumanized by perhaps tossing it into a freshly dug grave and shoveling dirt on top. Police think that Rick is somewhere close, in Nuego County, probably close to an area where the killer is familiar. Some killers want to distance themselves from the body. Others opt for a spot that they can keep an eye on. Some killers panic and find the first available site, in a hurry to be physically away from the result of what is essentially something very, very wrong with themselves, with who they are at their core. They're trying to distance themselves from their failure at being a decent human being. Rural Michigan is, sadly, a good place to hide a body. Nuego specifically, with its long stretches of woods lining both sides of two-lane country roads until a mile opens into a patch of farm or field that due to their proximity to another dwelling, aren't much less remote themselves. There are swamps and lakes aplenty where you'd be lucky to ever find a body that was put into them, and in fact there are a few local missing persons cases 
where it's very possible the victim is still in one of those lakes. I talked about some of those lakes and victims last season. As for Rick, I personally don't think Rick is in a lake. He might be, but I think it's more likely that he's nearby one, or perhaps near a pond or a creek, which the area has in great abundance. The weather on the 10th of August in 1983 was windy with rain showers on and off during the day. About a half an inch of rain recorded with a high temperature of 75 and a low of 46. That's Fahrenheit. So wherever they were standing, wherever they were maybe digging, the killer and perhaps his accomplice, they were tromping around on muddy ground. When Rick's car was found, there was dried mud inside and outside the vehicle. Someone said it looked like it had been driven through a field, which means that the Trans Am could have been driven to the remote disposal site, if not close to it. Or maybe they tried one place, for some reason it didn't work, and then had to go to another. More than one person suggested that pigs might be involved because of comments made by people in the close circle of the named suspect, though I tend to wonder if these guys had the intestinal fortitude to dismember a body. Obviously, you can't just toss a body into a pig pen and tell them to have at it, can you? Would it take feral pigs to do the job, or would your average everyday pigs on a farm be capable of eating an entire human? I did a little research and was horrified at the answer. You're always going to have problems lifting a body in one piece. Apparently, the best thing to do is cut up a corpse into six pieces and pile it all together. Would someone mind telling me? Who are you? And when you've got your six pieces, you've got to get rid of them. Because it's no good leaving it in a deep freeze for your mum to discover now, is it? Then I hear the best thing to do is feed them to pigs. You've got to starve the pigs for a few days, then the sight of a chopped up body will look like curry to a piss head. You've got to shave the heads of your victims and pull the teeth out for the sake of the pig's digestion. You could do this afterwards, of course, but you don't want to go sieving through pig shit now, do you? They will go through bone like butter. You need at least 16 pigs to finish the job in one setting, so be wary of any man who keeps a pig farm. They will go through a body that weighs 200 pounds in about eight minutes. That means that a single pig can consume two pounds of uncooked flesh every minute. Hence the expression, as greedy as a pig. That was a clip from the movie Snatch, but it appears to be mostly accurate. In 2012, a 70-year-old farmer in Oregon had gone out to feed his animals, and when he hadn't returned a few hours later, one of his family members went to look for him. He found the man's dentures on the ground in the hog enclosure. Police believed that something had occurred so that the man ended up in a position where the hogs were able to consume him. Now these were 700-pound hogs, and apparently they found enough unconsumed parts to make that determination. In one of the witness statements, the family member mentioned that at least one of the hogs had become aggressive. Another story I found from 2004 described a Romanian woman 
who'd been knocked unconscious by her pigs and they had eaten the woman's ears and half her face. Afterward, her poor husband, who had been sedated, was heard to say, I'll never breed such beasts again. Apparently, for someone looking to kill someone and get rid of them quickly and effectively, pigs could be a viable solution. They have digestive systems meant for breaking down carbs and protein, but I learned that the natural capacity of a pig to eat flesh quickly depends on the age and the sex of the animal. According to Homestead Organics, a Canadian agriculture development agency, lactating sows eat more than full-grown boars and they can consume 10 to 14 pounds in a single setting. To get rid of a body quickly, that means you'd probably need 10 or 15 lactating sows to do the job in a couple hours. I suppose you could refrain from feeding your pigs for a few days in preparation for such an event, but as far as this case, I have no indication that Rick's murder was premeditated in that fashion, meaning days of preparation. So even if pigs were used in the disposal of Rick's body, I doubt it was part of some larger master plan. It has been suggested to me that the father of the named suspect may have had pigs on his residential property, but again, do these guys have it in them to take an axe or a saw to a body and then toss the remains into the family pig pen? Would they risk just tossing in a dead body whole and hoping for the best? Hoping no neighbors stop by for a visit and witness the whole bloody affair? I think not. The whole thing sounds a bit over the top, but unfortunately, Michigan is no stranger to killers who allegedly fed their victim to pigs. Two brothers by the name of Duval killed a pair of hunters and then told people they did just that, fed them to pigs. People tend to believe them since the two young men were never found. Darker Than Night by Tom Henderson. Check it out. He was formerly a writer for the Detroit Free Press and he did a great job with the story. I recommend it if you like true crime. The story is very compelling. But that incident happened in 1985, a couple years after Rick Atwood went missing. So it's also quite possible that ideas about him being fed to pigs were generated in the years after the murder, once that other story became part of the public consciousness. It's also possible that people close to the named suspect would make comments like that in an effort to distract from the actual body disposal site. Now, I should say here that I am not positive that the named suspect had help disposing of the body, but I think it's more than likely that he did, and you'll get to decide where you fall on that issue once you hear the story. At the very least, it appears that the brother of the named suspect saw Rick's dead body, and he wasn't quiet about it either. I have never seen a police report so riddled with anguished, impulsive confessions by someone involved in helping to cover up a murder. The named suspect himself was like Chatty Cathy when it came to details of this crime. Didn't talk to police, but he talked to everyone else. You know how that game of telephone works? You tell two friends something, and then they tell two friends, and so on and so on. Well, my point is, this story, by now, it really does have to be known by a significant hunk of the White Cloud community. And it is a small community. A lot of the people that lived here then live here now. For that reason, I don't want to attribute any particular witness to any specific statement of facts. 
so I'm going to fashion a flowing narrative from the credible witness statements and include as many of the known elements of Rick's last day alive as I've been able to piece together. At around 9.30 the morning of August 10, 1983, which was a Wednesday, Rick was gassing up his Trans Am at the Quick Mart in White Cloud. Our named suspect had already been seen out and about and was headed to meet Rick to buy some pot and possibly set up a deal. It was a yucky day, it rained on and off, not a lot, just enough to keep everything a little wet and gooey. Now White Cloud, it's a tiny little town of about two square miles, and its population has fluctuated just a scotch up or down from about 1,500 people over the years. It's one of those towns where the locals know just about everyone who lives there, or at least knows of them, and more likely than not, most people are aware of what law enforcement calls the local actors. Guys, let's not be precious here. Generally, in a small town, everybody knows who to go to when they need their car fixed, or when they need their septic tank pumped, or when they want to buy a dime bag of weed. That's just small town life. Rick Atwood sold pot. If I go by the collective accounts, including a supplier of his, customers, and his girlfriend at the time, he would get a couple pounds at a time and sell it locally. He visited his supplier in Grand Rapids a couple days before he went missing, because he apparently owed him about $400, and he was due to be stopping back by with that cash in a day or so. By the time his car was gassed up that day, and Rick replaced the nozzle, the day was well upon him. Rick should have shown up that day to pay back the dealer, but he never did. He did end up in Grand Rapids, though. He was seen in the area around 4 that afternoon at Riverside Park, with another young white male in the car. We'll get to that in a bit. There were quite a few sightings of Rick that day. Shortly after gassing up, Rick was in the parking lot of the White Cloud High School, and two black males were in the car with him. One of those black males is the named suspect in this case. They were apparently buying a small amount of weed, and then Rick is said to have dropped both individuals off at different places. The named suspect said that after he was dropped off, he never saw Rick again. That would be his first lie. In the records I have, Rick wasn't spotted again until around 1.30 that afternoon, going southbound on M37, turning east on Baseline Road. There was a female in the car with him at the time. So that's about three hours between the first and second sightings, but there is some information to suggest that he was working on a car with a friend around that time, which would explain where he was between that 9.30 sighting at the high school and when he was seen driving on baseline around 1.30. At around 2.30, a couple things happened. Rick's girlfriend got home and saw that his fishing stuff was gone. Around that same time, Rick was spotted, now going north on M37, but this time, he was alone in the car. At around 3.30 or so, he had a conversation in which there was some indication that some people were looking for him, and not in a good way. That last sighting was sometime after four, and that was at Riverside Park in Grand Rapids. White Cloud to Grand Rapids is a little over 40 miles, and Google gives a drive time of 56 minutes. So that timing fits pretty well when you understand that nobody is looking at their watches, and all of these times are estimates. A white male was seen in the car with Rick at Riverside Park, and he was described as early to mid-20s, brownish blonde straight hair, 
not fat, but filled out or chunky. He was possibly wearing a flannel shirt. I'm not sure police ever tracked down this young man because I didn't see a witness statement to that effect in the file. So if you were with Rick that day at Riverside Park, I would love to talk to you. But I'm betting police would like it if you contacted them instead. And I would encourage that. I do know that he made another stop in Grand Rapids that day to a home on Dale Street, and there was a similarly described white male with him at the time. So it could be the same guy. Maybe Rick was selling them pot, or maybe Rick was buying. I'll get into this a little bit later, but it's possible that Rick never made it to his dealer's house to pay back that 400 because he didn't want to pay the money back that day. So instead, he arranged to buy a large quantity from someone else. There are no recorded sightings of Rick after that one in the park. Not while he was alive, anyway. His car would later be found at the Gateway Motel on 28th Street, which is about 11 miles south of Riverside Park. Rick did end up back in White Cloud, only he was no longer alive when he was brought back. Stay tuned. 